1: This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever, and you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rockstar with Workday. to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today's episode is about a crypto implosion that stunned the world, or at the very least, stunned me. As listeners of this podcast know, I am not exactly the world's biggest crypto booster. I consider myself a skeptic who tries not to write off technologies that I don't fully understand. But of all the characters in the crypto landscape, the one I was perhaps most interested in, even in a way the most impressed by, was Sam Bankman-Fried. He went by SBF. SBF is the founder of a crypto exchange FTX and a hedge fund Alameda Research. Sam was a quirky nerd with wild hair who dressed in cargo shorts and t-shirts for conferences. And he was a fixture of media events. He appeared on the cover of magazines like Fortune and Forbes. He donated to democratic candidates. He subscribed to a philosophy known as effective altruism, which is a kind of utilitarian movement that seeks to do the most good for the most people now and in the future. And he has expressed an interest in giving away all of his money to an array of charities from malaria prevention to artificial intelligence safety. Some magazines had called him the next Warren Buffett. Others went even further. As cryptocurrencies fell in value over the last year, SBF bailed out several projects, which struck some as a kind of echo of gilded age robber barons stepping in to prop up the financial industry during the crises of the late 1800s. People called him the J.P. Morgan of crypto, or the JPEG Morgan. And his company was a fixture in sports, too. FTX spent $135 million on the naming rights for FTX Arena, where the Miami Heat play. They paid millions of dollars for a Super Bowl ad with Larry David. They attracted investment from not only blue-chip venture capital firms like Sequoia, but also Tom Brady, Giselle, Steph Curry. And then it all fell apart. One month ago, FTX and SBF were the darlings of crypto, and now it's a total cluster shit. After a report circulated a couple weeks ago that this exchange's balance sheets were heavily composed of tokens that were essentially invented cryptocurrencies or mathematically sophisticated IOUs, there was a run on the bank that left FTX down several billion dollars. A rival exchange called Binance initially offered to buy them, but later pulled out, and the company has declared bankruptcy. SBF's $16 billion wealth was wiped out in a matter of days. We don't yet know the full shape of the failure here, but it looks a lot like fraud. And this is the part where I have to make a confession, or a few confessions. I have met and interviewed Sam. I liked him. I thought he was charming, and weird, and smart, and playfully intelligent, game to answer questions about the intersection of crypto, the greater good, the nature of capitalism. I liked that he talked about crypto, not like a true believer, but rather like a guy who stuck a drill in the ground, found a $1 billion in oil, and decided he didn't really care that much about oil, but he'd like to soak it up and give it away to better causes. That was a really interesting perspective from the richest 29-year-old in the world. Another confession, the movement that F- SBF subscribed to, Effective Altruism, is a movement that I have respected for a long time. In fact, when I lived in New York City for several years, one of my subletter roommates was a philosopher named Will McCaskill, who is now a leader of that movement, Effective Altruism, and was until recently sort of a moral consigliere for Bankman Freed. I knew Will. I knew that Will trusted SBF. And so while I never wrote or podcasted or had any money or any financial relationship with FTX, I sort of admired Sam's strangeness from afar. I admired the causes that he gave to, including, and especially, pandemic preparedness. And now, like a lot of people, I think he may have been a fraud. I want to stress that we don't yet know exactly what happened, but at least one plausible scenario is that SBF was in charge of both a trading platform FTX, and a hedge fund. That meant he had access to customer funds that he could bet with. And when the hedge fund made a series of bad investments, he may have transferred customer funds to fill that hole. That is incredibly bad. It might meet the legal definition of outright fraud. And it makes me feel like this guy that I kind of admired from afar might have been less of a JP Morgan and more like a Bizarro. Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO, former CEO of Theranos. If you recall, Holmes had a costume, the black turtleneck, the red lipstick. SBF had a costume too, the frizzy hair, the disheveled clothes. Holmes hid her fraud with bluster and confidence. SBF hid behind this illusion that he was in on the joke, that he partially understood that some crypto valuations relied on a kind of infinite Ponzi scheme. Where Holmes seduced with impressiveness, SBF may have seduced by being disarming. I don't know. Maybe there is a ton we still don't know about this. Maybe there's a more innocent explanation. But right now, I don't think there is. I think people got played. Now, there are so many lessons we can draw from an implosion like this, an Icarus story like this. I think one of the lessons is the dangerous power of stories. When SBF was raising money from Sequoia, which is one of the most famous and successful venture capital firms in the planet, he reportedly wowed the entire VC movement, the entire VC team, while playing a video game on a separate screen. So at the same time, the fact that he could secure millions in funding from discerning investors while playing a video game, it was seen as a sign of incredible genius, right? His ability to do nine things at once, which is an important trait for a founder. But now... In retrospect, it looks like Sequoia gave their money to a kid who was either in way over his head or worse, was so unmoved by the immorality of his entire enterprise that he couldn't be bothered to give investors his full attention. Another lesson is that we, the media, kind of suck at allocating our trust. We idolize wealth. We idolize people who braid mainstream success and radical personality quirks. We Hollywoodize complicated characters and fail to ask the hard questions. Questions like, hey, Sam, you run a trading exchange that has an obscure and complex relationship with a hedge fund? Are we sure that's above board? Or is this arrangement an obvious invitation for duplicity and fraud? Well, today's guest is no stranger to writing about duplicity or fraud in the business world. Bill Cohen is a longtime best-selling finance journalist whose latest book, Power Failure, traces the rise and fall of GE. He's been following the SBF FTX crypto meltdown even as he's producing a documentary on the state of and future of the crypto industry. And he provides us excellent background on the finance aspects of this disaster even as we debate what it means that we were all duped or so many of us were duped by this bizarre and extraordinary character. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English.
0: Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, it's great to be here. I'm a real honor.
1: I think we should start by talking about this character, who Sam Bankman-Fried is. Tell me about the SBF that the world thought we knew just two, three weeks ago, because I've already said this in the open, I interviewed him about a month ago. I had no idea that this guy was about to become the most infamous name in business, What made him such a captivating and unique figure before the sky fell down?
0: Yeah, I've thought thought a lot about that, uh, Derek, in the last uh, few days. And, you know, I had interviewed him for this documentary film about crypto that I've been working on for the last year, uh, last December. So think about it, last December, like Bitcoin peaked last November-ish at like 69,000. So in December, you're talking about... uh, SBF Sam Bankman Fried, you know, flying into New York on a cold winter night. You know, we're up in this, you know, hotel on Sixth Avenue at like 55th Street. And um, I'm freezing. I mean, I'm freezing my ass off. And he comes in, of course, in his shorts and his t shirt, looking like a mini, uh, you know, Albert Einstein. And you got to remember, he's at that point, he's 29. He's the richest person under 30 in the world. So, already there's this aura about him. He comes in, t-shirt, shorts, it's cold, he doesn't seem to feel it. Um, talking about being a vegan, his parents uh, are both Stanford Law professors, so I'm I'm sorry, I don't really know anybody who's, both of whose parents are Stanford Law School professors. He graduated from MIT in physics, so already, okay, uh, anybody who, has a degree in physics in college, you know, is already on a separate plane from mere mortals. And then having a degree from MIT in physics puts him, you know, on a separate plane. And then he goes and becomes a, you know, a trader at a hedge fund downtown New York, you know, et cetera. So I think the this resume, the combination of the resume, the parentage, the DNA, the appearance, the wealth you know having accumulated and like this ftx name being everywhere right on the on the stadium in miami on the freaking uh you know umpire uniforms uh his influence in washington being the second largest donor to the democrats you know in this cycle after george soros i mean i mean what more do you need to be, you know, sort of wowed from the outset? It's an unbelievable package that this guy has put together and and being incredibly, pretty much incredibly open to the media and available to the media and cover boy for the media, you know, and once again, people just fell for it hook, line, and sinker. Let's do a little TikTok on the week leading
1: up to the FTX bankruptcy filing. Um, there are a lot of steps here that I am not going to collapse for our purposes, but basically I see this as a three-part story. Part one, there are rumors and revelations that FTX's balance sheet is composed of tokens that it invented um, and that are potentially nearly worthless. Customers freak out and there's a run in the bank. Part two, as it goes with bank runs, sometimes FTX does not have the cash on hand that it needs to fulfill all these requests. They used to have the cash, but the cash is gone. It is somewhere else. We will return to this mystery in a second. And then part three, after this bank run reveals this $8 billion to maybe $16 billion hole in FTX's balance sheet, SBF scrambles to raise funds or otherwise collapse into bankruptcy. Yeah, so this finally gets us to the big question, which is what the hell actually happened here? You know, where's the money, essentially? Where's the money, Lebowski? So the story that most people seem to be telling is that FTX of course, was not just a trading platform. It was a trading platform attached to a hedge fund called Alameda Research. And that hedge fund had been making absolutely wild amounts of money during the crypto boom. But when asset values crashed, the hedge fund was wiped out and SBF tried to fill the hole by transferring customer funds into that private private investment fund. But as the market continued to be a disaster, he then lost that money too and as a result, the entire thing imploded. Is that your closest understanding of what we're looking at here with FTX?
0: Well, first of all, it's important, I think, to to not uh, project, n- not be definitive about what we know or don't know. I mean, obviously, there's some been reporting, and usually the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg or whatever who are sort of leading the charge here are and the New York Times are, are responsible in trying to get it right. Uh, but we have a bankruptcy filing, we know that for a fact. What we really need here, as I was saying the other day, is an examiner hired by the bankruptcy court to really sort through what happened. But what I'm hearing happened, and, and what is kind of like the big mystery is, um, and what could be, I mean, the, re- the real issue here, Dirk, is, is whether uh, uh, SBF is a naive, which he certainly comes across as from time to time, almost childlike, as I'm sure you would agree, uh, or whether he's a major league uh, criminal fraudster. And so on the one hand, if he's a criminal fraudster, what I've heard is that, you know, th- the question is people would send him money or crypto to trade on his exchange. And did they actually have accounts on the exchange? Did he actually open accounts on the exchange? Or was that all just a fiction as a way to take their money and put it into his hedge fund? Like it never even was on the exchange. And there never really was, this is one theory, never really were any accounts on the exchange. So all these customers, whether there's 100,000 or a million is the latest number is, they gave him all this money, and he just hived it off into Alameda research, okay then and so that's that would be completely fraudulent and criminal, and that's jail time right there. Then I've heard that he uh had these tokens, you know the shit coins, which you know, and they were thinly traded because he controlled most of them, and then he you know. Gave or, you know, he exchanged 500 million of them in exchange to to CZ over at Binance in exchange for his stake in uh, FTX that he wanted to sell. So he got shitcoins in return. And then he, when he realized he wanted to sell them, you know, all, all hell break loose. But in the before that, you know, apparently, we, we don't know yet, but apparently our boy SBF was using the shitcoins as collateral for margin loans. We don't know who was making those loans to him. That would be nice to find out. But as the value of the collateral, the shit coins fell because CZ said he wanted to sell his 500 million worth of them, then he got the margin loan spiral just spiraled out of control can I just, this is, this is great. I, it's exactly where I wanted you to go. I just want to tap the brakes
1: here for people who might have their head spinning when you say collateral on margin loans. I mean, you're, you, you've written about this for years. So you're the perfect person to ask about this. In plain English, like, what are you talking about when you're talking about using collateral for margin loans? And then maybe if you can try to introduce the idea that that collateral in this case is a made up crypto token.
0: Right, so anybody who uh, uh, has a brokerage account uh, might be familiar, which is like half the country, uh, is uh, might be familiar with you know, quote unquote, a margin loan, which is something that a broker uh, will allow you to do, which is to uh, uh, take a loan from the broker using your stocks as collateral. I don't recommend this uh, at all. It is very stupid to do and very risky and very expensive uh, the money is very expensive because what happens is if the value of your stocks goes down you know then essentially the loan to value ratio or the value to loan ratio if you will uh uh, uh you know the coll- the assets your stocks are collateral that the brokerage or bank uses to get comfortable with making you in the loan in the first place just like when you get a mortgage on your house the asset is your house and the bank is making you a loan based on what they perceive as the value of that house. Now, that doesn't really fluctuate that much, but stocks go up and down all the time. Uh, And so, you know, if a stock goes down and you've got a margin loan against it, then they can ask for more collateral, more stocks. Or or if you don't have that, they'll sell you, they'll sell out the stocks to pay themselves back. And that'll just, you know, deteriorate very quickly. And if your collateral or if your asset that you are getting a loan against is shit coins, i.e. made up cryptocurrencies, which seems to be something that these crazy exchanges do. And for the life of me, I frankly wasn't even aware of it. And yet the more I hear about it, I cannot even believe that anybody fell for this okay, let alone gave them value, let alone got a margin loan against it. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. these people all need to have their heads examined, and they're kind of getting what they deserve uh, at the moment because this is so ridiculous. But what happened was when these, you know, I think what happened was that CZ at Binance wanted uh, his equity bought out of FTX, and Sam did that by giving him $500 million worth of FTT, these shit coins. And then he said, you know, at some point when he started here, looking at that balance sheet that came out, which I, by the way, not sure anybody could ever uh, decipher, but people did. And uh, anyway, that's another, that's another rat hole to go down. But, uh, you know, when he just said he was going to think about selling uh, these shit coins because they were for shit, Uh, Then the margin loans came in because the value of them started dropping, and therefore the asset value had decreased, and the margin calls came, and the spiral began. Uh, SBF needed to make those margin calls, needed cash, and either he tapped into his customers' accounts or he had already tapped into them. And then customers wanted their money back because it seemed, it seemed like it was spiraling out of control. And of course, he didn't have it because he had uh, either invested in all these, you know, he invested in Sequoia or whatever, all the things that, you know, Almeida research was investing in.
1: Right. And and that's why a lot of people in Wall Street are trying to think about what the right historical analogy is. You know, is this Theranos? Is it? Enron, WorldCom, is it, is, it a, is it a Lehman moment? We don't know for sure what it's going to be because we don't know exactly what happened yet, and we're still trying to piece it together. When will we know? I mean, you understand the bankruptcy process better than I do, but it seems to me that one of the points of the bankruptcy process is to reveal the underlying reality of the fraud or the mistake or the naivete, as you said earlier. Um, when do you think we're going to get something like that as formal as a bankruptcy process?
0: Well, it it is it has filed for bankruptcy in Delaware. There uh, uh, is uh, FTX uh, counsel uh, has now I believe Sullivan and Cromwell has been hired. Uh, I I've heard that, you know there may be res- a restructuring advisor. Uh, who is hired, you know, probably in the mold of somebody like an Alvarez and Marcel or something that 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 I don't know whether that's happened yet. There's obviously a new CEO uh, uh, who the guy who was, you know, got, you know, supervised Enron post-bankruptcy. So the guy, you know, kind of knows what he's doing or should in this situation. Uh, SBF is gone. He's acting as an advisor. He's probably singing like a canary uh, at this point, or he'd better be. Uh, he's hired uh Mike Milken's counsel from Paul Weiss which is telling um why is that telling well because uh Mike Milken was a criminal as well and uh, uh you know spent time in prison uh, albeit I'm sure a country club prison um for his uh misdeeds uh, uh during the 1980s uh which I could talk about it forever another time uh but I don't think, but, it's, but there's chaos now, right? There's chaos uh, in Nassau. There's probably chaos in the Delaware court. Nobody knows what's really going on. They're trying to get their hands on it. They don't know whether there's a hundred creditors or a million creditors or, or what. So until things sort of get organized and sorted out and they're like creditor committees uh, appointed, and frankly, until the judge appoints an examiner I mean, this is a case that screams for an examiner to figure out what went wrong, just like Lehman Brothers uh, case uh, screamed for an examiner. And it could be almost that size in terms of the billions of, of, of capital at stake here or that was lost potentially. And until you know an examiner comes in with the powers of the bankruptcy court, uh, to uh, you know subpoena people and get them to talk and to say what happened and look at the accounts and to look at the books, I mean that that piece of paper that is now serving as like the quote unquote balance sheet of FTX and and, and you know his hedge fund is beyond pathetic, right? It's and, not and let's, even- let's, can you expand on that? Because we've referenced it a few times now,
1: just like this absolutely bizarre balance sheet that was circulated to the, potential rescuers.
0: produced. What, what makes it so bizarre? Uh, because, it, you, know, I, you know, a company that is pro- being properly regulated, like by the SEC, uh, which, of course, FTX wasn't, uh, you know, it's a private company, Even private companies had audited financials. And, and, you know, given that he founded this company in 2019, in the three years in the interim, he was able to get $1.8 billion from supposedly smart investors who apparently made these investments, you know, without audited financials because, you know, I've not seen any audited financials. I've never heard of anybody talking about any audited financials. So, uh, you know, what appears is a one pager listing some shit coins on it, as you said, is both assets and liabilities and using that to try to raise $8 billion of cash. It's it's beyond absurd. It's it's pathetic. It's is that naive or criminal it's just i don't know but obviously he completely did not succeed because but he obviously had succeeded in years earlier raising 1.8 billion dollars from the likes of sequoia and other you know ontario teachers i mean it just blows my mind that he was able to do that from people who just sort of should be doing the due diligence on behalf of their limited partners I mean, how anybody can give these firms any additional money after this fiasco is beyond me as well. But of course, you know, we know that our friends at uh, A16Z, you know, Mark Andreessen's, uh, you know, this has to be the smartest guy in the world next to SPF, right? He gave uh, Adam Newman a new fresh $350 million after we work. I just, don't understand how this can keep happening over and over again or why you would ever want to be a limited partner in funds that do this. But okay, so. so And I want to
1: put a pin in that because I want to get back to the idea that a lot of LPs are potentially going to just give up on the entire crypto enterprise because it's just such a wild west for now. The last question I have about SBF specifically is the tweeting that's happened in the last few days has just gotten increasingly surreal and bizarre. At one point, he was just, Tweeting letters, letters and numbers that seem to spell out a kind of acrostic of what happened. I mean, I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze exactly what's going through his mind there, but there was one tweet that really, really surprised me and caught my attention, which is where SBF seemed to indicate that he was still trying to figure out what happened. This is and would a explain week, it to us, and would explain it to us. This is a week, a week and a half. After the implosion of the business for which he is the CEO, it is run or seems to be run by about 10 people living out of the a, 30 in dollar Nassau, in a $30 million apartment. In the $30 million mansion on, on the water. How is it possible? Or look, you're the, you're the expert. You, you've been reporting on this for decades. Have you ever heard of a situation where the CEO of a hedge fund? or the CEO of any kind of investment bank akin to the FTX Almeida Research hybrid did not understand what had happened to their company at the moment that it seemed to be collapsing.
0: You may find this hard to believe, but this is kind of the way it goes (laughs) when, when there's a financial implosion. I haven't, you know, I've written about any number of financial implosions especially around the 2008 financial crisis obviously wrote a book about the implosion at bear stearns wrote a book about how goldman was able to avoid the implosion uh, you know I, I will tell you that the executives including jimmy kane uh, that i interviewed uh, at bear stearns uh, and all the rest of the senior executives at bear stearns they did not know what had happened to their company basically Uh, Bear Stearns uh, disappeared uh, 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 about as rapidly as FTX disappeared. You know, it all happened in a week. The eyes of March, in March of 2008, it was literally gone in a week, really three days, not unlike FTX. Because that's because, Derek, Wall Street and finance is a confidence game. It is a confidence game. If you have confidence in your financial institution, you know, you can put up with a lot of shit. The moment that confidence is lost, it's over, it's over. And it happens like that. And you know, people don't think it's going to happen. they never expect it's going to happen. they don't believe it's going to happen. I mean, Bear Stearns was around for 85 years. It didn't have a losing quarter until the fourth quarter of 2007. two and a half months later, it was gone. and it was gone in a week after people like Jim Cramer went on CNBC saying, you'd be crazy to sell your Bear Stearns stock. And Alan Schwartz, this, who had become the CEO of Bear Stearns for three months in January of 2008, you know, said everything was fine. And, you know, it's not because once the way you finance, you, once the, where your source of capital comes from dries up, whether it's, uh, repo financing in the case of Bear Stearns, or customer accounts, which is criminal. But if he was using them, that you know that the opposite of being available is when everybody wants their money back at the same time. That's called a run on the bank. When there's uh, when there's a run on the bank, confidence is completely lost, and that's because in a fractional banking system, your money is never at the bank. Do you ever wonder why when you go into a bank branch? they're impressive, they're made of marble, they're bank vaults, there's a huge vault in the corner, you know, the size of a football field. It's to give you the impression of safety, that your money is safely at the bank. But guess what? Your money's not at the bank, it's never been at the bank. If it was at the bank, we would not have a banking system. You put your money in the bank, and they immediately or soon thereafter lend it out and they, lend it, they pay you nothing for the money you leave with them, and they lend it out at big spreads. If your money was at the bank, they couldn't use it to make money from your money, and therefore there wouldn't be a banking system. So as long as people don't want their money all at the same time, the system works. When people freak out and lose confidence, which happens like once every decade or so, they make a run on the bank, they want their money at the same time, just like at FTX, just like at Bear Stearns, just like at Lehman, just like in the ni- 1929, 1930, just like over and over and over and over and over again, then the system collapses or that entity collapses. And that's what happened at FTX.
1: And what's so interesting to me is that in a way, to put a bow on the SBF story for now, he was playing a kind of reverse confidence game because the typical bank, as you said, looks like a temple. The typical banker is in a natty three-piece suit with a perfect tie and perfectly coiffed hair. He or she is supposed to look like the absolute picture of like a marble column or a bust etched into deep marble. And SBF was playing the exact opposite game. I never comb my hair. I am never going to look comfortable in a suit. I'm going to wear T-shirts and cargo pants. I'm going to give the impression of such extraordinary extraterrestrial intelligence that I don't even have to get dressed for you, for you to trust that I understand what's going on with your money and my investment scheme. It it, like it, it, if it does finally come out that he was basically Elizabeth Holmes with worse hair and cargo shorts, like that's going to be the story that he played this extraordinary reverse confidence game on a lot of really sophisticated investors. Two more layers here first, crypto, and second, the philosophical movement of effective altruism that SBF was a part of. You know, I'm really curious what this does to institutional investor trust in crypto. Like, of course, there's going to be a vibe damage. It's rough to have the white knight of your industry revealed as a fraud or a failure, but it's really the institutional damage. The JP
0: Morgan of your industry.
1: Exactly, or or the JPEG Morgan of your industry. It's really the institutional damage um, that, that I'm most interested in. Like, one of the investors one of the major investors in FTX was the Ontario, Ontario Teachers Pension. The next pension fund is going to look at the next marginal investment in crypto and say, no frigging way. There is no way I'm making the same mistake that Ontario made six weeks ago, six months ago. I mean, how devastating do you think it is for the near-term future of crypto to have an implosion like this that might have a chilling effect in all these institutional investors?
0: it might be the best thing that ever happened to crypto. Just like the implosion of internet 1.0 pets.com was the best thing that ever happened to the internet, right? I mean, you know, it went from being a total speculative paradise or, or nightmare uh, after March of 2000, you know, when, when it was, remember, you know, you're too young to remember eyeballs and you know, all the crap that was being slung about all these companies and all they, you know, they all went public. They got their capital. They spent it on marketing to try to get eyeballs or creating their website. And then it all crashed out. And then out of that, out of that wasteland, that, 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 you know, the forest fire, the raging forest fire of that, that came green shoots. And out of that came, you know, the Googles, the Amazons, uh, you know, the next generation of companies in the internet that actually could use it, could could actually provide services and products that people wanted and could actually make a profit. And, you know, now, of course, that's Web 2.0. Now, of course, people have started talking about Web 3.0 and how it's going to be decentralized again, blah, blah, blah let's not go down that rabbit hole, but that whole concept might be on ice now. But I think, you know, the whole, you know, facade of crypto capitalism has been, I think, you know, plowed asunder at the moment. And, you know, I still believe, even though I don't really understand it, Derek, I have to say, I don't really, still don't really understand it because I'm obviously not smart enough because I'm an old fogey. But, you know, Perhaps there's something to the blockchain and the technology behind Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies that might be useful and can be built upon to make something that might be truly innovative and and valuable for society. But I think, you know, clearing out this underbrush of all this crap and, you know, all the shit coins and all the 2000 coins that are traded on Coinbase and, and, uh, you know, all this BS that's being flung at us for years now, um, I think will be potentially quite healthy.
1: This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever, and you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients, talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. I think bending over backward all the way to be fair to crypto in this moment when no one needs to be fair to crypto, it is of course possible we can see some kind of forest fire effect that we saw with Web 2.0 in the early 2000s where the pets.com crashes, the pets.coms of the world crash and the Amazons nearly go bankrupt but end up becoming the next behemoths of the 21st century. Of course, something like that could happen. But there's something that you said that I think is really potent, which is that you just said, I'm a smart person, but I might not be smart enough to get crypto. So who knows, maybe I just have to like trust that smarties better than me are gonna figure out the way forward in, in Web3 crypto decentralized, whatever. It is potentially precisely that attitude that is responsible for giving us people like SBF, a lot of really smart people and a lot of venture capital firms saying, you know what? I'm really smart. I've bet I've made huge bets in hard tech, I've made huge bets in consumer tech, I've made huge bets in, you know, native apps, etc. I don't think I'm smart enough to really understand what's going on in crypto. But damn, these physics majors from MIT really seem smart and they dress weirdly and they talk in circuitous language and it sounds really brilliant. And I might as well write them a check for a hundred million dollars to see what all this is about. And it turns out that the fact that these people who are very smart didn't feel smart enough to truly understand what crypto was about was an important signal that there was no underlying product there was the promise of a product built upon a interesting piece of math and technology but hadn't yielded anything of use to actual consumers certainly in America like th- there is always that possibility that your uncertainty is actually the most important signal here that underneath all these promises, it's just a lot of hand-webbing
0: and shitcoins. Well, of course, that is absolutely correct, okay? There's no question that that is absolutely correct. Uh, and, and and that has, you know, at one point created a trillion-dollar industry out of nothing that's now shrinking close, you know, getting its Three, three trillion at its peak, right. Three trillion at its peak and now about 700 billion, yeah. Right, uh, but on the other hand, You know, both things can be true. It can be true that we don't understand it for shit. And it can also be true that it might have some value at some point. Like, I don't understand, you know... I don't understand how my iPhone works. I don't understand how a car works. I don't understand how a combustion engine works. I don't understand how an electric engine works. I don't but understand- But you do the,
1: understand how to use all those things because you drive a car and you use a phone and you turn on a combustion engine. I think it's a really important distinction that you is, don't use any But there was a time when I
0: didn't understand, the, and there were time when people freaked out about cars, absolutely freaked out about cars. You know, I had just written this book about GE, you know, GE was 100 years ago the first manufacturer of electric cars. Have you ever seen people trying to drive the first electric cars or the first combustion engines? It's like Laurel and Hardy. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's like the Three Stooges. I mean, people, it t- didn't. I mean, I didn't understand, you know, Wi-Fi or internet, the internet. When you know, remember Katie Couric? What's this thing, the internet? What is this internet thing? I mean. It takes time for people to internalize it, to adapt it, to get used to it, to trust it. And I think we're just like kind of in the early innings of whatever this thing is. Uh, Speaking
1: of extraordinary downfalls of uh, once esteemed companies, you have a new book out about about GE called Power Failure. Tell us a little bit about this book that comes out this week and why you chose this subject for your latest
0: book. Well, again, it's it's not unlike kind of Michael Lewis being embedded with, you know, SPF. You know, I, once upon a time, worked at GE Capital when I first got out of uh, business school uh, back in the 80s, and all of a sudden, this company that was once the most valuable company in the world, the most respected company in the world, the most revered company in the world, the, with a the CEO who was the C, the manager of the century, who created unbelievable technology. The technology that Google created, that Microsoft created, that Apple created, all rolled up into one. I mean, there was no better technological leader than GE, you know, 130-year-old company. And next thing you know, it's a dead body on the floor. So just like I wanted to know what happened to Bear Stearns, just like I wanted to know what happened to G, at Goldman Sachs, just like I wanted to know uh, what happened in the Duke lacrosse scandal, uh, I wanted to know there's a dead body on the floor, namely GE after 130 years, how to get there. How the hell did it get there? So I spent three years trying to figure it out. And I pretty sure I figured it out. And that's what this book is about. And uh, I think it's a riveting story. Uh, of course, what writer doesn't think what they've written is riveting. But, uh, you know, to see the most the sub the, the subtitle is the rise and fall of an American icon. I mean, there was no company more iconic around the world than GE, and you know, Hank Paulson, former Treasury Secretary, said that to me himself. I mean, you know, when he goes to China, that's what they talked about: GE. What happened to this company? How did this happen? How did it go from the most valuable company in the world in two thousand one to irrelevant twenty years later? Is there a thread that connects the fact that? Jack
1: Welch and Imelt, the CEOs of GE, were among the most respected CEOs by the media for a period of their tenure. And now your book asks us to reevaluate the legacy of their tenure. Is there a thread that connects that to the fact that the media doesn't seem very good necessarily at picking out the CEOs that are going to have the best track record in the long run? We fall in love with people who either fit a very specific um, uh, archetype, like Elizabeth Holmes, or people who violently push against that archetype, like SBF, but seem to not have a great track record of, of identifying those leaders that uh, uh, are the best for the long run of their company.
0: Look, we the, the media just gets, the mainstream media just gets captivated by these people. I mean, you know, in addition to SBF being on the cover of Fortune and Forbes literally in the last year, right? Uh, I mean, guess who else used to be on the cover of Fortune and Forbes all the time? Jack Welch, Jeff Immelt, Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, we, uh, you know, Miss Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, Adam Newman. We fall in love with these people You know, in America, we love to build people up and we love to tear them down. That is just the arc of the narrative that we get totally entranced by, you know, whether in politics or in business or sports. It's just what we like to do. And so, you know, that's what happens in business. That's what's happening, you know, with SBF now. That's what's happening with Jeff Ilmold and Jack Welch and Elizabeth Holmes and Adam Newman. I mean, that's, and, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, that's just the, the way it goes. And it's, Probably not healthy because, you know, the ups and the downs, you know, this culture, this reverence culture that we've developed, especially for people with, you know, billions of dollars in their net worth is not healthy because a lot of money is lost along the way by people who don't know better, who think there's some great thing being here that, you know, their fear of missing out. uh, And what really happens is their, their money disappears and they wonder what the hell happened. Certainly seems to be what happened in this case. Bill Cohen, thank you very much. Thank you, Derek. It was a pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Manzi. If you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us a five-star rating. Leave a review. And don't forget to check out our TikTok at PlainEnglish underscore. That's at English underscore on TikTok.